The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Four score and seven years ago, that is still the best-known opening to any speech in American history. What more is there for us to learn about it? Didn't we hear just the same introduction to this very show last week or last month? Well, yes, we did. But it turns out there's still more to the Gettysburg Address, especially in the 150 years that followed November 1863. We'll learn about the long shadow of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address tonight in a conversation with author Jared Peatman on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, <coughs> here in Greenville, North Carolina, where it's a cold but not unpleasant early late winter, early spring day in March of 2014. It's our 
returning week after a week of spring break, the students engaging in revelry of all sorts, uh, the faculty less so. The recent article appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education pointing out what it is that professors typically do during the students' spring break, and most of the time it's not vacation. I was able to combine uh, some pleasure with family business, taking my daughter to look at the University of Michigan as a possible college destination, and uh, visit the ancestral home, uh, visit with my mother, who's listening tonight and still recovering from a broken arm, but hopefully getting her cast off this week, the bright green cast that attracts attention everywhere she goes and has strangers come up and ask how she is doing. It's a very good therapeutic thing to have if you have to have a broken arm, which, of course, not good in the first place. Uh, Also last week, I had the opportunity to spend a few moments filming uh, a segment of the cable television show America Fact or Fiction, in which I was asked some questions about aspects of Abraham Lincoln's life, and then it branched into some Civil War questions, which... Uh, which I I did my best with. There were some questions about specific Civil War photographs, for example, which, like most of you listening, I know something about, but not a specific expert in. There are real photograph experts out there. But I learned something. These shows have the budget that they have, and if I'm in the room and I know something about the 1860s, they're going to ask me about Civil War photographs. And likewise, when they want to know something about Abraham Lincoln even though I modestly would say I know way more than some of the people they actually interviewed for their Lincoln segment a few weeks earlier. Uh, they talk with whoever's in the room, and then it's on on to filming the next segment about the Titanic or Amelia Earhart or some other topic. And so the public gets their, their history uh, a mile wide and an inch deep from basic cable television programming. But here we go a little deeper on Civil War Talk Radio. As always, every week, uh, we'll be looking at some interesting topics in the weeks ahead. Next week, March 26th, Ray Catherine Amy will join us to talk about Abraham Lincoln in the kitchen. If that sounds unpromising, if you're in the mood for more military-oriented fare, Uh, Be patient. Stay with it. Uh, I found uh, this book about food history in Lincoln's time uh, quite interesting, and some of the recipes quite tasty. So uh, it'll be worth your while. Robert Girardi joins us the following following week to talk about Civil War generals. Then we'll uh, visit with Corey Recco, author of A Spy for the Union. March, no, April 16th, Robert Connor has a biography of Gordon Granger. On April 23rd, James Conroy has a book on the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865, which uh, certainly plays a role in an era that people are looking more and more at now, the era of the Lincoln movie and the ratification of the 13th Amendment. So uh, it's surprising nobody's written about that that event in any detail until now. And then rounding out the month of April, uh, Catherine Meyer with her book on uh, Civil War environmental history, Nature's Civil War, uh, Virginia in 1862. Uh, So lots coming up in the weeks ahead. Please join us. You can follow it as always 
at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps the gears turning, where you can click on the PayPal donation button and send your hard-earned dollars to me so I can buy remote-controlled helicopters or find cigars, which I don't actually smoke, so that's unlikely, uh, or books about the Civil War to talk about on this show. Any of those are possible. You can also buy books uh, direct from Amazon through links you find on that page, and that just sends a few pass-through pennies to our website and helps keep it in business and doesn't cost you anything, so please consider doing that. When you're buying the books you hear about on the show, I continue to get emails from people who are both uh, uh, kind enough to say nice things about the show, but also a little bit grumpy about the fact that they have just spent more money on yet another book that they heard about because the author sounded interesting here, and all I can say is I'm fully guilty of that charge, or at least I try to be each week. That's the goal here. Well, this week we have a book about the Gettysburg Address. We had one a couple weeks ago on that topic, and we've had others in the past. Uh, Gabor Borat has written about it. Uh, Gary Wills, uh, who has not been on to talk about it, uh, but we'll get him one of these days. Uh, I don't think, no, he's not been on yet. Uh, Martin Johnson was on a few weeks ago, and today... We have yet another uh, author who's addressed the daunting topic of the most famous speech in all of American history. Uh, the author is Jared Peetman. The book is called The Long Shadow of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Mr. Peetman, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be on. So... I'm looking at your picture on the dust jacket here in the back, and it's good to negotiate a picture on the dust jacket. Some authors forget to do that, uh, and then they don't show up. Um, and I'm trying to recall, I'm, uh, your name is familiar, and I'm, I'm thinking we must have met at the Lincoln Forum one of these years. Uh, Probably at the Civil War Institute um, in one year past, I recall, um, a session that you spoke at that I enjoyed years ago, and Maybe at the forum as well. I've participated in a couple of those over the past few years. So, so our, our paths have crossed uh, here and there, and uh, I'm sure we'll continue to do so. Are you currently based in Gettysburg? Um, yes and no. I live outside of Washington, D.C., um, but for the last four years or so since I finished my Ph.D., um, the work I've actually been doing is a little different. Um, I'm you know, trained as an academic, but I've found myself doing leadership development events at historic sites. So the main group that I work with is the Lincoln Leadership um, Institute, which is out, based out of the Wills House right in Gettysburg. So it's a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice place to be as a Lincoln Scholar. That, that's not bad at all. And yeah. I, I apologize for not recognizing you, of course, Dr. Peatman, which I, I should have said when introducing you. Um, oh, no worries. When... Uh, who is the Lincoln Leadership Institute? So the Lincoln Leadership Institute is a, a human development firm um, that's been around for about 15 years, though some of the main people involved have been doing that for quite a bit longer. Um, and mainly we do um, anywhere from one day, but most typically three-day leadership development events for government agencies and corporate corporate folks. And we use history as a metaphor to talk about different leadership issues. So. I most often talk about uh, communication strategies through the Gettysburg Address, um, but we do sessions on 
on pickets charge is a broken negotiation and discussions on uh, Joshua Chamberlain is a great example of a transformational leader. And we do things other places, too, places like the Alamo, Pearl Harbor. We did something at Waterloo in December. In fact, when I had to cancel uh, last month on you, and thank you for <laughs> rescheduling, by the way, uh, I was actually in Texas at, a, at an event at the Alamo and was worried about getting stuck there with the weather. And you were gracious enough to let me book an earlier flight and, and beg off the commitment. Uh, but it's a, it's a fun way to sort of make a living and uh, do something a little bit different with my history degree than, than sort of the normal path. Well, I... I... I have a lot of reactions. First one would be, in terms of PR, I'm just wondering, do you sure you want to be bringing your leaders to Waterloo and the Alamo <laughs> and even Pearl Harbor? Yeah, uh, yeah, they're interesting places, and certainly there are um, sort of diverse lessons that you can draw, both good and bad. Sometimes the the lesson simply is, how do we not end up this way? Um, and then other times the lessons are obviously a bit more, how do we emulate certain people like Lincoln? The, uh, the well, also I'm, I'm delighted always whenever I hear of uh, somebody with an interest in history finding some creative way to turn that uh, into a career other than teaching. Not that there's anything wrong with teaching; uh, I certainly enjoy it. But as someone who teaches public history, I keep telling my students there are opportunities, and I like to hear about people who find them. How did you find your way to the Lincoln Leadership Institute? Uh, you know, it's funny. I was actually, um, you know, I attended Gettysburg College, um, and I worked as Gabor Bort's research assistant for the four years I was there. Uh, after I left, I continued to come back to the Civil War Institute every summer, the week-long conference that the college hosts. And uh, I guess my last year in grad school, I was giving a tour, and a woman came up to me and, and said that she was a human resource officer for a government agency, and they were doing a leadership development event in Gettysburg the following spring, and she wanted to know if I was interested in being involved. Um, so, you know, being a struggling grad student with no money, the offer of, of uh, a week's employ, I said, sure. Um, Absolutely. And went and did a couple of a couple of weeks with them, and it turned into a sort of a longstanding thing with them. And, and um, the founder of the Lincoln Leadership Institute, Stephen Wiley, walked by when I was doing a session in the cemetery at Gettysburg, and couldn't figure out why I was talking about the Muppets and the Gettysburg Address, and, and uh, you know, we sort of started talking, and, and things just went from there. So no amount of planning makes up for dumb luck, I guess. Well, that, that is how these things go. I'm paging through my files as we talk here because I've been on at least one uh, leadership program at Gettysburg uh, from my days at the Lincoln Museum when the, the Lincoln National Corporation ran that institution, and they once sent their uh, leadership people out to the battlefield, and they'd hired a, a company, and I, I'm trying to remember if it was, in fact, the Lincoln Leadership Institute or a different one. This would have been 15 years ago now. There, uh, there are a few other groups that, um, that offer um, trainings that, at Gettysburg as well. Um, we, of course, like to think we're the, we're the best, but mm -hmm. um, there, there are some others that do that as well. So um, it, it's a great way to... It's a great way to think about things. You know, sometimes, you know, if you're sitting through these trainings that a lot of people in corporate and government America have to go through, you know, they all look alike, they all sound alike, they're, they're boring, they're in a seminar room. So, you know, it's, you're never going to forget walking picket's charge, and then you'll sort of remember, you know, talking about it as a negotiation, what are the steps, how could, how could Longstreet have made things turn out differently, you know, communication-wise, what, what's the real secret behind the fact that everybody, as you said at the beginning of this program, 
can recite most of the Gettysburg Address. You know, why is that? There are certainly lofty reasons why, you know, reasons having to do with vision and values and those things. But there are also some really practical communication reasons why, too. Um, and so it's just a fun way to think about sort of a, a topic that can be boring, to be frank. Well, at, at the time that I did that, coincidentally, there was an editorial in one of the uh, Civil War magazines. I don't remember which one now, uh, you know, Blue and Gray or, or Civil War History that were, were thriving at that time, in which the the author raised some questions about the uh, how appropriate it was to do this. And, and there was a flurry of letters to the editor back and forth. This tells you how long ago it was. It wasn't an internet dust-up. Uh, right. But people were actually writing in and publishing things. The, the gist of it was, and I'll put this the challenge to you: was is it appropriate to the the memory of these men who lost their lives fighting for something they obviously believed in deeply? Uh, is it appropriate to, or does it trivialize it to turn that to getting a bigger profit next quarter for company X that hires their their well-heeled executives to walk the battlefield for an afternoon? Sure, um, and that's a great question. That's certainly not not the way I think that we and and I would think most companies really do it. Um, you know what we're concerned about is trying to help people become better leaders so that they work with their people better, they treat their people better, they treat their people more effectively. We really focus on sort of the the human side of it. You know, how do you create an organization that takes care of its people and and creates high performing people as well? Um, and we do, as most people do, work with. With corporate America, we're certainly, in the end, you know, they're driven by profit. Um, but we also work with a lot of hospitals. We work with a lot of government agencies as well. Um, and obviously they're a little bit more altruistic um, in, in the things that they do. So, um, but, you know, I think, you know, thinking about the men that died there, I think they'd be, I would hope that they would be happy that they're, you know, what they went through is being used to try to improve the future of the country. And one hopes also that maybe some of the people on the tours, on the, the seminars that you're giving, come away with a, an appreciation for something, that, that there is more to life, perhaps, than, than uh, uh, just the, the next quarter. And uh, Well, absolutely, and that's one of the nice things as a historian. That's kind of my, you know, one of my, my secret pleasures in the whole thing is that, you know, people come for a, uh, a leadership development experience, but along the way they get a lot of history. And, and in some ways, I think as just as Americans, that's just as important for, you know, for them going forward as actually the leadership development experience. And, you know, there's a lot of people that come sort of a little bit hesitant because they're not thrilled about having to spend a couple of days thinking about history to any extent um, and leave, leave with much more of an interest in, in going back and reading the history. So, I think it serves dual purposes there. So I'm, as a historian at heart, I'm, I'm always happy with that. It is, uh, I guess it's hard for any of us, you know, talking or listening tonight who are already bitten by the history bug to remember that to a lot of people, history is, is the dullest subject there is. It's when I think of chemistry, uh, that's what other people are thinking of history. Uh, and you know, it, it, for us, it's the most interesting possible subject yet, uh, uh, well, some people would face the idea. As historians, we've kind of developed this notion of a usable past, right? So what what can we learn from the past in terms of maybe politics or, you know, whatever else? And this is really just an extension of that as well. Um, and I think it gives sometimes 
the complaint I've heard from people that don't like history is that it's not relevant. It's not relevant for them today. And, and you know, I would disagree with that on a fundamental level. But um, this is a way in which you can really show to everybody that it is relevant. It does have continuing lessons for us today, even if it's not just for the sake of the history itself. But there are lessons that you can draw from it that can help you in you know whatever it is that you may be doing on a daily basis. Well, your book certainly addresses the continuing relevance of the Gettysburg Address, and we need to get to that. But first, we're going to take a short break. I'm talking today with Jared Peetman, author of The Long Shadow of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Jared Peetman, author of The Long Shadow of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. We talked in the first show a little bit about uh, Jared's day job as uh, a uh, leadership uh, 
expert leadership development consultant with the Lincoln Leadership Institute at uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where he helps uh, conduct seminars in leadership using history as an example. I've had uh, a small amount of experience doing that. It really is an interesting thing to do. It does raise questions that make one think uh, about the role of history, uh, but it also is, is great to talk to an audience of people who are paying attention because they paid so darn much money to get there uh, or their bosses have that they will actually listen to you. Not that our students here at East Carolina or anywhere else have not paid so darn much money to get here, yet, uh, as has famously been said, education is the one industry where the customers demand to be shortchanged uh, and get their days off and so on. Well, Jared, you... You said you studied with uh, Gabor Bort. You were you were his uh, research assistant. Did you work with him on his uh, Gettysburg Gospel book? I did not. I I was there a bit before that. Um, I worked on the Lincoln Enigma, um, and then uh, I left and taught seventh grade for a couple years before I went back to grad school. And I was actually um, in my master's program when he decided to do that book. Okay, well, Lincoln Enigma. I I was fortunate to get a, a chapter in that book. Uh, so we have cross paths in one, yeah, one form or another. Yeah, that's right. I'm remembering now that, that now as well. Right. Um, well, I, I didn't ask him this when he was on the show, which is not too long ago. Uh, he and his son, uh, Jake, were on together. Uh, but I'll ask you, how does one get the nerve to write a book about a topic so heavily covered as the Gettysburg Address? Well, the topic writ large is heavily covered, as is almost every topic with Abraham Lincoln. You know, I think the stat is that there's something like 18,000 books on Lincoln. Um, but I think I've sort of looked at something that, that most people haven't, um, you know, which is the legacy of the speech. Most people, you had Martin Johnson on a, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, like most people, have looked at uh, sort of everything that leads up to the speech. So I, I think that kind of breaks down into three categories. People have looked at uh, like Gary Wills, for example, has looked at sort of the philosophy that went into the speech and the, the influences on the speech from a really high level. Uh, and then people like A.E. Elmore in 2008 wrote a book called Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and he looked at the actual the words, and he looked at the influence of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer on Lincoln's word selection and, and what other influences there. Martin looked at the, the actual writing, you know, the physical writing of the speech and what can we learn from that. Um, Dr. Bohr, Lewis Warren in 1964, they looked at what actually happened. You know, sometimes we forget that this was an event, too. It wasn't just a speech. It was an event. Uh, they mainly looked at what actually happened. Nobody really had looked at the long-term responses to the speech. Um, and when I was an undergrad and searching for a a topic for an undergrad senior thesis, um, I initially started just by looking at the responses in the local town of Gettysburg. And, and the question I was originally trying to answer was just what was the reception of the speech? Because sometimes you hear people loved it, other times you hear people didn't like it, they didn't think much of it. You know, there's that famous line from Ward Hill Lamon where Lincoln supposedly says that speech won't scour. So I started off just trying to figure out, you know, by looking at the citizens of Gettysburg themselves and what recollections they left, what can we learn about the reception of the speech. And it kind of morphed from there. Um, You know, I thought I just would be looking at 1863, but then, of course, I realized that 
most recollections are left a long time later. And when you start reading things that are written in the 19-teens, you realize how much they're impacted by the progressive era and some of the other things that are going on, and, and you know, longer as well. Um, so I, I just kept expanding in scope. Um, when I, for my master's thesis, I looked at Southern responses to the speech. When I first started that, I pitched it as a topic, and, and um, Dr. Board, and who I you know, asked about it, even though I wasn't there anymore, and, and Bud Robertson both told me, uh, don't bother, you won't find anything. Um, so an 80-page thesis later, um, there were quite a few Southern responses, actually, and they're hilarious, by the way. A lot of the early ones are pretty funny. Um, but I looked all the way through the 1960s. Um, and then for the dissertation, I did the, you know, continued to do the same thing, just broadening it and looking at ever wider circles, looking at New York City and London, as well as Richmond and Gettysburg, and looking at sort of critical periods. I didn't necessarily try to cover, you know, every response from every era. That, that would have been impossible. But I sort of keyed in on what I thought were really important moments in the history of the Gettysburg Address. So um, sort of the early 1900s, this imperial progressive era, uh, the World Wars era, the Cold War civil rights era, um, and looked at in these different moments in time, what was sort of the prevailing interpretation of the speech, uh, the, the accepted narrative of the speech, and then what, if any, counter-narratives were out there as well, who was sort of railing against the prevailing, um, the prevailing accepted ideas and uses of the speech in different times. So that was sort of the, the structure that I tried to take. And when I looked at it in that way, um, rather than, you know, seeing, seeing myself as one voice among many, I don't think there are many people that have really looked at that, that sort of long-term uses and invocations of the speech. So I, I'm curious uh, what you found, especially at the beginning, the the sort of standard historical narrative for many years was that no one did pay a lot of attention after the, the first week and a flurry of partisan newspaper reports for or against uh, come out. There was not a lot of attention paid to the speech for the next, say, 20, 30 years uh, an example of evidence given for that was that you could find uh, uh, portraits of Lincoln uh, done in penmanship where uh, somebody has written the entire uh, Emancipation Proclamation and by shading some letters heavier than others you step back and it forms the outline of Lincoln's silhouette of his his head Mm -hmm. Later, you, you don't you see those from the '60s and '70s, but you don't see that done with the Gettysburg Address until 30 years later. And when I worked at the museum 20 years ago, people said, "Well, that's evidence that no one knew the Gettysburg Address was a big deal." But you did find evidence that people didn't forget about it. Yeah, and you know, all this is kind of circumstantial, right? Whether you find these things or you don't, it's all a little bit circumstantial. But some of the circumstantial evidence that I think indicates that speech was, um, never did fall from the public eye. You know, that's, there's a bit of a notion that the Gettysburg Address had a rise later, that it had somehow mm-hmm. fallen and that it had a, had a re-rise. And I just don't think that's accurate. I think the words are always with the people. The meaning that people attach to it will go through many different iterations. And at times they'll, they'll find a really significant meaning at other times not so significant, and, and that'll change. But the words are always there. So a couple of examples. Um, in the summer of 64, um, you have the Hartford um, Courier, for example, is one paper that prints uh, the Gettysburg Address, and it says, let us not forget the president's words of last fall, 
They're so impactful. You have the Harp, uh, Harper's Weekly doing the same thing that fall. So you have a variety of papers sort of reminding the people of, uh, you know, at, at different appropriate times, reminding the people of the Gettysburg Address. And so in that sense, the newspapers will continue to reprint um, the Gettysburg Address in 64 and 65. I think it's a, it's a case sometimes where unless you systematically go through those papers, you may not find it. You may not find it referenced as the Gettysburg Address. You may, not, you may just find snippets of, of the speech um, as, you, as you go through those later papers. The other piece of evidence that I think is compelling is that if you look at the funeral eulogies um, that were delivered after Lincoln died in 1865 around the country, and I looked at several dozen, it, a surprising number of them will quote a line from the Gettysburg Address in the speech or, or in their eulogy, but they won't attribute it directly to the Gettysburg Address. They won't remind their listeners that this comes from the Gettysburg Address. And to me, this suggests that it's because they know that their listeners will know where it came from. And so there's no need to, to remind people. It would be sort of condescending to say, hey, this is from the Gettysburg Address. They all know that. So I think that's a, another piece of circumstantial evidence that indicates the words never really leave, leave the people. The, if, if the words are there, one of the themes of your book, it seems to me, is that they are a, a malleable tool to be used over time to accomplish different uh, political or ideological tasks. Uh, around the turn of the century, you get a, a, a revival where it's not just the words that are known, but everybody uh, begins to absorb these myths. The uh, the perfect tribute story comes out. Right. Uh, you get the idea Lincoln wrote the address on the back of an envelope on the train. Uh, why did it become so popular around the beginning of the 20th century, and what was what was it used to mean at that time? Well, I think um, if we think about the perfect tribute is a, is a great sort of lens into this. The perfect tribute, of course, is a, a short story originally in Scribner's Magazine and later printed in, in book form by a woman named Mary Raymond Shipman Andrews. She's a southern-born woman who's married to a New Yorker and is living in New York, I think Buffalo, um, in, the, in the early 1900s when her son comes home and tells her, you know, a story of the Gettysburg Address. She felt like in order for reconciliation to occur, that one of the things that would be helpful would be to have a southern tribute to Abraham Lincoln and to the Gettysburg Address. And so she pens this reconciliationist narrative. And the reason it's a reconciliationist narrative is that she has Lincoln get off the stage with no applause and assuming that people haven't understood it and that he's failed in his attempt to um, you know, talk about something lofty at Gettysburg, goes back to Washington the next day, and a wounded Confederate officer who's in a, a prison camp there tells Lincoln it's one of the greatest speeches ever, everybody's going to remember it, and he sort of raises Lincoln's um, spirits again after, after he gets back to Washington, D.C. So it sort of shows this Southern appreciation of the words of the Gettysburg Address. If you think about what's going on in the country in the early 1900s, you know, just coming out of the sort of imperial era, this is right before the, the World Wars era, it's really a, a period when the United States is expanding, and in order to do that, needs to be more unified than it was. So the Gettysburg Address in this era, it really focuses on that final line, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's something that's fairly uncontroversial. I mean, most everybody can agree with that line. You can interpret it in different ways, 
but most everybody can agree in theory at a 30,000-foot level with, with that line being applicable and being a great um, summation of what democracy really stands for. So as that part of the Gettysburg Address is quoted over and over and over, it gives people from both sections of the country, all sections of the country, something that they can kind of hang their hat on as being what America really is all about. So that ties brings us to the 50th anniversary, uh, is a reconciliationist era, North and South are holding uh, reunions, soldiers' reunions. Uh, what about the international uh, impact? Did, did the Gettysburg Address play a role in the world wars? Uh, did, did people adopt it? It does. It plays, a, it plays what I think is a big role, um, and it's a, a little bit of that same concept that I just sort of mentioned. In 1913, at Cambridge University, a gentleman named um, Earl Curzon, who would later become Lord Curzon, he'd been a former viceroy of India, um, so he's a pretty high-ranking British official. This is, this is almost like official government lecture, as much as anything. He's delivering a lecture on modern parliamentary eloquence, and somebody asked him towards the end, um, or he raises the hypothetical question, who, who are the best orators, what are the best speeches in the last couple of hundred years in the modern world? And he says, well, there's, really three, there's only three contenders. One is William uh, Pitt's response to a toast after um, the victory at, uh, of Trafalgar. And then the other two were both by an American. He says the other two were both by Lincoln. It's the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural. Um, and he says he, he, that, that one of those two is clearly the best. It's superior to Pitt's speech. But when he talks about the Gettysburg Address and he describes it, you can really see what he's trying to do. He calls the Gettysburg Address the intellectual patrimony of the English-speaking race. Not Anglo-Saxons in 1913. The English-speaking race. In other words, part of what he's saying here is... Hey, look, Americans, British, we appreciate Lincoln. We appreciate the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln kind of came from us earlier. He's talked about where Lincoln's ancestral homes in England are. We're united. We understand each other. Don't ally with the Germans is sort of the, you know, the, the understated punchline of, of this entire speech. So it's a way that Britain is trying to sort of hitch their cart to to the United States as we head into World War One. At that point, it's pretty clear that war is coming, not necessarily in six months, as it turns out, but war is coming at some point. And the Gettysburg Address is being used to try to unite these two countries. The, uh, the idea of government of and by and for the people, you say might be non-controversial in the United States. Uh, England is not a, a democracy, certainly. There, there's... There, there are social ranks and um, political ranks, and the speech is also not just about government of, by, and for the people, but also talks about uh, a new birth of freedom, which starts to be even more controversial, not just in England, but especially in the American South. So there had to be people who didn't like the Gettysburg Address as well. Uh, I see we're coming to a break, so I'm going to leave that question hanging, and we'll come back and find out who doesn't like the Gettysburg Address when we return to talk with our guest, Jared Peatman, author of The Long Shadow of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking today with Jared Peatman, author of The Long Shadow of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And we're about to uh, return to a question we left off the end of our last segment with. Uh, we've been tracing the history of the, the uses and responses to the address in the years since it was delivered up through the World Wars. Uh, not everybody has viewed it favorably. Uh, why would somebody not think the Gettysburg Address was a good thing? Sure. So let's start with the immediate responses in 1863. Um, and if you look at the city of, of Richmond, um, by November 23rd, the night of November 23rd, they've received the New York Herald of November 20th, which contained um, about four or five pages of reporting on everything that had happened in Gettysburg. They have uh, the text of Everett's speech, the text of Lincoln's speech, and, and uh, long summaries of all the other things that had happened. On the next day, November 24th, there are five daily newspapers that are publishing in Richmond, and they'll all publish. They belong to the Confederate Press Association. It's sort of a southern AP, essentially. They'll all publish a short excerpt just sort of summarizing what had happened there. And they note that Lincoln spoke, but they don't, they don't say any of his words. They don't give you a summary. Over the next few days, over the next three or four days, three of those five papers will write editorials, and they'll talk about the events that occurred there. Most of them focus on Edward Everett. Um, and when they get to Lincoln, they sort of cross over pretty quickly what Lincoln had to say, and they dismiss it. Um, for the most part, they'll dismiss it out of hand. It's sort of amusing what, what some of them will, ha- will say. The Richmond Examiner, for example, um, says that um, on the present occasion, Lincoln acted the clown. And they're saying he, and they, they pass over his words as not even worthy. But we can sort of maybe figure out why. In the opening line of the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln has invoked the Declaration of Independence. He's 
he's said all men are created equal. Well, that's not something that Confederates can accept in 1863. But at the same time, how do you shoot that down? Those words are written by Thomas Jefferson, who's a Virginian. So they're in this, I don't know whether Lincoln intended to do that or not, but they're in this weird sort of catch-22 where they don't really dare print the words of the speech because they can't really take issue with a Virginian. So it it's creates this odd situation for them. As a result, in 1863, they flat-out censor it, I argue. I think the evidence is pretty compelling. There's only one newspaper in the entire Confederacy that will print even a half line from the Gettysburg Address in 1863. So in the South, the words aren't seen at all. So you asked why would some people take issue with the speech. Well, there's one, you know, one sort of group that does immediately in 1863. You'll see at the turn of the century, um, some of the, the Southern Heritage groups as well, the United Daughters, the Confederacy, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, they'll take issue with the Gettysburg Address as well. Um, they'll take issue both with, with that same line, that all men are created equal. They'll also take issue with the notion that Lincoln is truly fighting for a government of, by, and for the people. They'll argue, of course, that Lincoln is usurping that, that form of government when he, in their words, declares war on the Southern states. So you'll also see some backlashes as well in the, the 1950s and 1960s. Some of the speakers, for example, at the centennial of the speech, the centennial of the Battle of Gettysburg in 1963, will both talk about the fact that, um, you know, what was Lincoln really trying to accomplish in the Gettysburg Address? They'll, they'll talk about the fact that when Lincoln says we came from the Declaration rather than the Constitution, that that's not really accurate. And then he's sort of rewriting history in order to um, create a future that he believes in that's not the same, that, that the country's been going down, not the same path. So there are naysayers along the way. I think what you find more than naysayers is you find sort of cherry pickers. You find people that will say, the Gettys, we believe in the Gettysburg Address because of what it says about democracy, but they want to leave out the equality part. Or you'll find people who only focus on the equality part, and they, they sort of ignore the democracy part. But for the first hundred years, um, and this is part of what I argue in the book, for the first hundred years, people don't really connect Lincoln's true argument, which is, I believe, that a democracy can only persist with equality at its core. They tend to focus on one of those things, usually democracy, or in a few cases, equality. But the interconnection of the two doesn't really come until the civil rights movement makes that abundantly clear in the 1960s. The uh, the effect of the the Gettysburg Address during its centennial is, is a really interesting topic. Uh, I found it interesting uh, on a personal level as my my own mentor David Donald gave the Fortinbaugh lecture in 1963 uh, at Gettysburg College about the address, and uh, you touch on how his his comments very much are are part of the the Second Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement. But let me take us back just a little bit before that. Uh, another section in your book I found particularly interesting was the Cold War era and the use of the Gettysburg Address as uh, propaganda against the the communist world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Eisenhower sort of really kicks this off. You know, as uh, general of the armies during World War II, he had dropped eight million pamphlets of propaganda uh, over Europe. Uh, as a as an attempt to win the war, at least in part through words, is as much through as much through fighting. And when Eisenhower becomes president, one of the first things he does is to create or to really reformulate the U.S. Information Agency, 
um, and give it a budget of $100 million a year and give it a seat on the National Security Council. So he really views, you know, they're tasked with telling America's story to the world. And he views that as a critical tool in the, in the Cold War and a critical tool of keeping the Cold War cold and not letting it become hot. Eisenhower, by that time, um, or shortly thereafter, owns a home in Gettysburg. He, if you've been to that home, he owns mm-hmm. a set of Lincoln's collected works. He's a huge fan of Abraham Lincoln. He'll paint portraits of of Abraham Lincoln in his spare time to relax. Eisenhower sees Abraham Lincoln as one of the, the great tools that America has. If you think about all the things, the bad things that are going on in America in the late 1950s, the, the bad stories that are getting out, whether it's Emmett Till or Little Rock or some of those things, Eisenhower and the U.S. Information Service are trying to counterbalance that a bit with the story of Abraham Lincoln. They're trying to tell these countries that are in danger of going communist in Southeast Asia and places like that. They're sending translations of the Gettysburg Address. They're putting forward the Gettysburg Address as a model of government, essentially, for these countries in Southeast Asia. I think one of the the most um, interesting moments I've had as a researcher um, was at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield. And uh, the curator there, James Cornelius, brought me down to the stacks and showed me some comic books that had been produced by the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial or Susquecentennial Commission uh, that covered the life of Abraham Lincoln. They'd been translated into a dozen or so languages of Southeast Asia, and they had printed 100,000 copies of them in 1959 and sent them to Southeast Asia to sort of try to promote the democratic ideal. And I think most poignant in my mind was inside the the, the cover of the one that was for Vietnam, the Vietnamese translation, there was a penciled notation that 32,000 copies had been sent to Saigon in the fall of 1959. So it's really using Lincoln to try to stop the spread of communism, to try to win the Cold War. And it's this notion that, that in an era when maybe the U.S. story wasn't all positive, that Lincoln represented something that was the best of us, something that we were still aiming for. That makes the uh, Civil War centennial all the more uh, ironic in some ways because, as you note, it rekindled some of the issues of the war when uh, delegations traveling to Fort Sumter to Charleston to uh, to commemorate it found that that the hotels there were segregated and northern delegations couldn't all stay in the same hotel. Uh, suddenly, we're, we're still fighting these issues of the war. And so remembering the Gettysburg Address suddenly becomes quite politically lively again. Well, it does. Um, You know, Eisenhower signs the legislation for both the Civil War Centennial Commission um, and the the Lincoln Burr Susquecentennial in 1957. And that period from 57 until 65, when the the commemorations wrap up, is, is an amazing era in this country's history. In 1957, by the way, when he signed that legislation, there were two Civil War veterans that were alive, which is a, another interesting story in and of itself. But if you look at the period from, from 57 or 59, when the commemorations really start, through 65, you have the Lincoln Birth Sesquicentennial and the Civil War Centennial, but behind them you have the Cold War and the Civil Rights Movement. And the way that the Gettysburg Address is used during this era really depends on what issues are at the forefront of your mind. Is it the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 that you're most concerned about, or is it the integration of the University of Alabama? What is really on your mind? What is the most dangerous thing to this country? And that's going to affect, potentially, how you see the Gettysburg Address or how you see its, um, how, how it can be used. 
to talk about this country. So it'll kind of change. It'll, it'll go back and forth. And I argue essentially that 19, late 1962, early 1963 is really a watershed for the country uh, and for the history of the Gettysburg Address as well. Until 1962, the issues that held sway are the Cold War for the most part. But in early 1963, the civil rights movement really becomes more of an immediate concern, more of an immediate threat to most people. And so the interpretations start to shift. Up until that point in time, almost every invocation of the Gettysburg Address had focused on that final line, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. But starting in 63, they start to put the whole thing together. People stop sort of cherry-picking the lines um, just to make that one point. They start talking about the first line again, all men are created equal. They start talking about the last line, but the fuller version of it that starts a new birth of freedom, government of the people, by the people, for the people. So I argue that it's in 1963 that Lincoln's uh, original purpose finally starts to be fulfilled. He meant this to be his most eloquent, and a lot of times people talk about its eloquence, but his most eloquent uh, pronouncement that a democracy could only persist with equality at its core. And for too long, we'd separated democracy and equality. But in 63, finally people start to put that back together. And that's really highlighted by um, two speeches in Gettysburg. On Memorial Day in 1963, Lyndon Johnson will make a speech to that effect that we have to start living up to these promises. And in November of 1963, Secretary of State Dean Rusk on the 100th anniversary of the speech will make that same comment. He'll say essentially that the only way that we can win the Cold War is if we win the Civil Rights Movement at home first. And we need to live up to Lincoln's ideals. Sort of interesting, the only reason Rusk is there on uh, November of 1963 is because the planners had asked John F. Kennedy to be there. And Kennedy informed them that he'd already been asked to go to Florida, and he'd already been asked to go to Dallas, and that he didn't think he could avoid those trips. Um, and so he went to Florida and Dallas instead, and, and as we know, he never came home from Dallas. Wow. So uh, uh, most unfortunate, Gettysburg did not have enough of a pull to have changed the plan there. Uh, we're close to the end of our time, and I want to divert from the book just very quickly to ask about how you got your initial interest in the Civil War era, because most of the listeners and many of the authors that, that appear in the show uh, look just like me, middle-aged, overweight, bearded, uh, white males um, who got interested in the centennial or late, just after the centennial era. Uh, but that's before you were around. What what got you into the, the Civil War thing? Yeah, um, I sort of was fascinated with history as a as a, a little kid, um, and you know I grew up in Maine. I started sort of making my way through the eras, and then mm. when I was in uh, fifth grade, I guess it was, um, family friend had had taken a trip to North Carolina, I think, for a funeral. Um, and on the way home, it stopped at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and it toured the battlefield and brought back one of those stupid little paper hats and a little picture oh, yeah. book on the battle, and I was hooked. So I still have uh, pictures of myself dressed in blue sweatpants and sweatshirt and a little wooden gun about a week later reenacting the Battle of Gettysburg <laughs> on our backyard. So, um, And I was fortunate enough, my, you know, in New England, you get uh, a week off in February and a week off in April, and Starting the very next year, my mom started bringing me to Gettysburg every year um, for our oh. April vacation and, until I went to college there, um, you know, eight years later. So I'd visited Gettysburg, I think, a dozen times 
between that and, and some of the summer reenactments before I actually went there for college. So, um, again, sort of happenstance, really. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of caught my attention, and, and you know, 20-whatever years later, it still got it. Well, the, the seed bore a uh, excellent fruit in this book, The Long Shadow of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which I know our listeners will want to take a look at and see how, uh, as you've described, this speech continues uh, uh, 150 years later to still have impact. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.